Welcome to After Hours, an interview podcast series from Lady. I'm Laura McClaus-Helms, a fashion and cultural historian. So the last few months have truly been a blur. I recorded this interview in February, and I plan to have it up quite quickly. But first I was distracted by wedding planning, then wedding postponing, then falling into the weird quarantine doldrums that I think have affected a lot of us. Normal life has completely changed since this interview was recorded. But while it feels like a completely other time, everything in this conversation is still valid and has possibly taken on even greater importance. When I spent most of a snowy Saturday at Martha Clark's home in Connecticut, I knew that all the subjects we touched on were so interesting, so vital. The creative process, growing older, the difficulties of raising money and surviving in the arts as an older woman, the current administration's devaluation of the arts, death. But now, three months later, I can genuinely say that these themes are prescient. How will the arts emerge from this pandemic? How will artists and creatives support themselves when so many institutions have gone bankrupt and there is no money for grants? What gems and masterworks will be lost forever, never coming to total fruition? Martha Clark is a dancer, choreographer, director, transcending dance and theater to make deeply evocative, moving spectacles of beauty steeped in history. For the last 30 years, she has lived in an early 19th century farmhouse that was previously owned by the artist Arshiel Gorky, who converted it into a painting studio featuring a stunning two-story window wall in the 1940s. Bathed in the most miraculous light are Martha's antiques, collected during her travels all over the world. We spent several hours recording this podcast episode at her farmhouse table, where she openly shared her memories, thoughts, and feelings. From Baltimore, Clark began dancing as a child at the Peabody Preparatory Department, first in ballet and then modern dance. A natural dancer, due to her talents, she grew up at an escalated pace. Clark summered at the American Dance Festival as a teenager, started studying at Juilliard at 17, danced with Anna Sokolow's company, got married at 20 to the sculptor Phil Grausman, moved to Rome, had a baby, and gave up dance for five years. In 1971, Grausman was invited to be artist-in-residence at Dartmouth College, where Clark met the head of the dance program, Allison Chase, and a group of young male athletes who had recently fallen in love with dance under Chase's tutelage, forming their own dance troupe, named Palabolus after a type of fungi. Four jocks invited Chase and Clark to join their new endeavor, a highly athletic sculptural form of movement. Palabolus was an instant success in the dance world, and the troupe was soon traveling the world with Clark's child in tow. In this interview, Martha talks openly about the ups and downs of Palabolus, which is still in existence today, and her own emerging creativity that led her to leave the group at the end of the decade. Away from Palabolus, Clark's work became more historical. Mining references from all different eras, she found influences in paintings, photographs, historical periods, and literature. Her work also began to straddle dance and theater, an intersection that confused the critics, one that allowed her creativity to blossom. Recreating Hieronymus Bosch's triptych, The Garden of Earthly Delights, as a phantasmagoric exploration of theater, dance, music, and flying in 1984, brought Clark both critical and commercial success. Her following works explored such themes as Vienna at the end of the 19th century, erotic love, and Kafka. What marks all of these works is their dreamlike quality, non-linear, they are more sketches of ideas than plotted story. They invite the viewer into an illusory world of fantasy. Some have been more successful than others. As you'll hear us discuss, Endangered Species in 1990 was her first real artistic and commercial failure. In the years since, she has directed many operas and theater performances, as well as created many of her own dance theater crossovers. In this interview, we delve deeply into the highs and lows, her successes and failures, and her process. In many ways, it was Clark's intriguing way of blending a multitude of ideas and inspirations 
into the creation of a multimedia dream world that seeded my desire to interview her. Creative process, the whys, the hows, the research, the false starts, the edits, the reworking captivates me. And I wanted to know how she works, how she researches, how she coalesces her ideas into a finished whole. For the last few years, Clark has been working on a project about St. Francis of Assisi. Tellingly, this process has unveiled to her the ageism inherent in a world of performance grants. Now 75, Martha finds herself often excluded, overlooked, or pushed to the side as producers and foundations seek out young, new talent, forgetting the wisdom found in our elders. This part of our conversation feels very prophetic in light of a pandemic that attacks the elderly and the often callous way that this demographic has been discussed by governments and the media. We also spoke of the loneliness inherent in growing old, when one by one you lose those closest to you. Right before this interview took place, Martha's cousin, the producer Margot Lyon, passed away, and in the last months she lost her brother. The frailty and shortness of life, a subject explored in Clark's dances, writ large, both in the personal and on a global scale. Our conversation was extremely warm, eye-opening, fun, and at times incredibly moving. One of her dogs we heard often in the background, and there are a few sudden cuts due to outside noises, but I believe the few sound issues will not affect your enjoyment of this discussion. Thank you. I went to Juilliard. I believe I was the first student they took without a high school degree, and that's another story, but I had a great education in music history, but I got married because it was a different time as soon as I left school. And um, to Philip Grousman, who is a wonderful sculptor, I met him when I was 17, and he got a pre to Rome and moved to Rome for three years. In the meantime, I became engaged to an investment guy, <laughs> but realized one morning I'm not sure I'm ready to be looking at townhouses on Park Avenue, or off Park Avenue, more appropriately. Yeah. Um, and then Philip came back from Rome, and my parents liked him. He was a nice Jewish boy from the Upper East Side. And um, in the era that I emerged as a young woman, it wasn't unusual to get married right after college. Mm -hmm. So Philip wooed me. I wasn't quite sure about it, but he was my first artist that I knew very, very well and my best friend. And we got married. And at the time, I was a dancer in the company of Anna Sokolow, mm -hmm. who was a very well-known choreographer who had a very strong socio-political message about underdogs uh, at the time. And I danced with her company for two years, and one morning I woke up and I thought, we don't laugh in those rehearsals. I'm done. Mm. So Philip and I moved to Rome, and I became pregnant with baby David, who's a jazz musician, age 51. <laughs> so I did a lot of things very, very early. Wow. We came back from Rome, and um, strangely enough, we were friends with Robert Redford, who had been a design student at Pratt for stage design and had met Philip through Daniel Selznick, David O. Selznick's son. They were roommates at the George School. It's all very contrived. But Redford had a house up in Washington, Connecticut, and we came to visit him in 1967. 
no, 69, <laughs> you can, and uh, fell in love with the area and decided to move up to Connecticut. Um, we moved up when David was 10 months old. I didn't know what I would do professionally. And in 1971, Philip was asked to be, Philip Grousman was asked to be artist in residence at Dartmouth College. And when we went up to Dartmouth, I hadn't danced for a few years, I met the woman who ran the dance program, Allison Chase, and she had a lot of cute young guys leaping about in her room. One became a student of my husband's and eventually my partner in Palabos, which was just a bunch of jocks lifting each other, developing a technique without knowing they were developing a technique of co-dependent body parts in a way of lifting and using each other's weight to make kind of sculpt sculptural form. And Allison and I decided it was a lot of fun. We were both married. Uh, David was time three. And Palabalas kicked off in the Vermont public school system. And of the four men, two men thought it was they were losing their originality to include women who were professional dancers. But the other two men won, Moses Pendleton and Robert Barnett. And we got an engagement at the American Dance Festival. Um, it went extremely well. And we got invited to Paris uh, by Pierre. My father had been a jazz musician who wrote for Fats Waller. Um, but we were not raised, we were, I'm, I guess we were raised in a German Jewish household. Mm -hmm. My grandfather was a banker and played chamber music. And every Thursday night, while I lay on the floor at his house and watched The Lone Ranger, he and three old buddies would play Brahms string quartets in the living room. So I was raised with classical music. My father loved to improvise piano. Uh, Aunt Shirley Clark, the filmmaker, um, had been a dancer with Hanya Holm. But Shirley and Bert, my father's brother, Uncle Bert, lived in New York, so we didn't see them that much. But when Shirley would come to Baltimore, she had a pixie haircut and wore all black and smoked cigars. So she, I imagine, was an early influence. In fact, the night before I was born, my parents had decided I'd be Jeffrey Clark, and Shirley said, what if Jeffrey's a girl? They didn't have a name, and she said, name her Martha after Martha Graham. Oh, wow. <laughs> True story. Amazing. But my parents weren't particularly interested in dance, but there was a wonderful music conservatory in Baltimore called the Peabody Conservatory, and I studied Eurythmy at the age of five, and I guess I had a somewhat natural talent for moving around. And as a little girl, I loved to mimic people. And then you went... I went to camp in Colorado when I was 13 called Perry Mansfield, which is in Colorado, for horses. Okay. I was a big horseback rider. And there was a famous choreographer there and had theater and dance as well. She was affiliated with the Pasadena Playhouse. 
Helen Tamiris choreographed Annie Get Your Gun and Plain and Fancy on Broadway in the 50s. Okay, so it was more Broadway-type dancing. Yeah, but she was an amazing character. She was beautiful, blonde, and wore capes, and she kept a live dachshund swung around her neck. I mean, I've never forgotten. And I took modern dance classes with her. She was creating a work on Walt Whitman, and she needed a child for Out of the Cradle, Endlessly Rocking, a famous poem mm-hmm. of Whitman. And I auditioned and got the part, and the die was cast. <laughs> and I loved, Dustin Huffman was a stage manager. He was 19. <laughs> or, you know, he's a few yeah. years older than I am. It was my first time being in a kind of theatrical setting. Joan Van Ark from Knott's Landing was, had, we shared a bunk bed. <laughs> I think I was on top and she was below, but... It was my first time being in a really um, artistic with young people environment, and I got the bug. Mm -hmm. I went to the American Dance Festival at age 15 and studied with Jose Limon, Alvin Ailey, Merce Cunningham. Graham was there briefly, but with major people from her company, and a wonderful, very well-known choreography teacher who was Graham's lover named Louis Horst. And Louis taught Merce, Paul Taylor, Anna Sokolow and Martha, and I was his last Martha. I had him at Juilliard, and he died in my senior year. And he exposed me to music. He had a course called Pre-Classic Dance Forms and another one called Modern Forms. And when I was at Juilliard, I learned a lot about musical structure and music history. And then about art, we did studies on primitivism, studies on medieval, religious, and secular, studies on impressionism, jazz, in his choreography classes, so that he literally has made a difference to so many major voices in the dance world in the 20th century. Mm -hmm. Is that when you got sort of interested in history more? I was not really that interested in anything. I think having been married to a, to Philip, who was nine years older, we traveled a lot, and the excitement he shared about art was amazing for me. I mean, I learned so much being marrying my best friend. Mm-hmm. I feel outside of a remarkable music education I got at Juilliard, which I'm addressing in St. Francis, which I'll get to. I've really been self-educated, and I've been lucky enough as a dancer to have traveled a lot. And I think when you travel in Europe or Asia or South America, you get exposed to amazing things. And living is probably the best education you can get. Mm -hmm. Well, and also, yeah, I think sometimes in, when you go to universities and get, get these kind of educations, you, you're taught somebody's point of view so much, and you don't, it's not this organic way of learning that you have if you're an autodidact. You know? Yeah. Well, I think I went to Spain and saw Hieronymus Bosch. Little did I know when I left Palabalus, which was very contemporary, I mean, and at its time. Yeah. I'm not sure now that, you know, it has the same message, but... 
The last piece I did with him was called Untitled, and we put it in a kind of Alice in Wonderland post-Victorian garden. Do you know the one? It's with the tall women yeah. with the naked men under mm-hmm. the dresses. I, I mean, I read about it, and then I think the very first scene in the Joyce Chopper documentary, there, you're, at least there's the tall women with the hairy legs. You're like running. Right, yeah. right, yeah. But that was the first time. We also did a medieval piece called Monkshood's Farewell that was influenced by some reading. Robbie, who was my partner, was Phi Beta Kappa at Dartmouth, and his father was a journalist with Life magazine. Mm-hmm. And... He was intellectually very interesting and interested. So I do remember that there was some, we looked up the early names of flowers for various sections um, of monkshood, which is, I think, a poisonous plant or a plant that makes you sleep. I'm not sure which. What was it like incorporating your sort of modern and ballet dance background into Palop, like the more athletic? Frustrating. <laughs> <laughs> What was it like? I mean, I think that I found the enthusiasm and the improvisation and the giggles with the young men more fun than I had had at Juilliard being in Anna Sokolow's company. Mm -hmm. It was a joy tonic initially. We did argue a lot. And I had nodes on my vocal cords when I left, and I thought, hmm, should be calluses on my feet. I think that eventually the men that stayed in the company found that the finished quality that the women brought of really well-articulated pointed feet was a plus. Also the fact that we were light projectiles, they could throw us through space, and that we had the technique to be able to do things that the men couldn't do. And it also, there was the wonderful exploration of sexual, of heterosexual sexual, uh, sexuality in it. I think after seven years, I grew weary of the kind of collaboration Palabalus was, which was he who yells loudest wins. Mm. And I had met a wonderful producer named Lynn Austin, who had a group called Music Theater Group, and we had done Untitled up at the Lenox Arts Center in Massachusetts. And she knew I was kind of itching to move on, and she said, let's talk, is there something you would like to do? And I had the idea of doing Kafka's Metamorphosis, and I did it with an actor named David Rounds, who had won a Tony Award for Mornings at Seven. And Linda Hunt, Mm -hmm. I have to swing backwards. Linda Hunt and I met in 1975 at the Long Wharf Theater where there was a production, which I became a choreographer of, of Listoire de Soldata Stravinsky, and another piece called The Night of the Burning Pestle. I worked with Victor Garber, Linda Hunt, a marvelous actor named Robin Gamble. And Linda and I became very, very close, and we did a two-woman show while I was still in Palabalus up at Lenox Arts Center called Portraits. She performed Irene Fournay's monologues, and I did weird solos. I did really weird stuff to myself. It's really sick weird. I'm very instinctive when I work, so that I, I saw a photograph of Baron de Meyer. Mm-hmm. You will know. Yes. Do you know the one with the net on the face and it's? Mm-hmm. And I decided to make a solo out of that. 
and it's still being performed by other dancers. But Linda and I wove these Fournaise monologues and my own strange choreography for Lynn Austin. Pierre Cardin put us on Broadway in 1975, and I think already it was getting around that Martha Clark was chomping at the bit. And Joe Papp came upstairs backstage at the St. James's with his cigar in his mouth and said, uh, just get in touch with me if you leave the company. So I was very lucky in that I had two amazing, independent, courageous producers who were interested in a rather bizarre young dancer who was doing sick work. <laughs> Joe introduced me to Charles L. Mee, Chuck Mee, who's a well-known playwright, with whom I eventually made Vienna List House, mm -hmm. and a piece on Toulouse-Lautrec called Belle Epoque for Lincoln Center Theater. So when Brown. you decided to leave Palabalos and you set up Crow's Nest, right? Forgot about that one. <laughs> okay, so Robbie Barnett was my partner in Palabalos. When I was dropping in the bit and also beginning to work in the theater with Linda, mm -hmm. I met a wonderful French dancer named Felix Blasca through Pierre Cardel when we had been performing in Paris. I was sitting after a performance, pulling off my makeup with my face lathered in cold cream, and I noticed an incredibly interesting, handsome man in the mirror. And it was Felix Blasco, who spoke not a word of English. And Pierre took us out to dinner with Felix, and we kind of batted our eyelashes at each other. And about a year or two later, he performed at St. John the Divine with his own company, and I went backstage, and he was... He shared with me in kind of broken English that he was ready to move on, and I invited him to visit me and Philip in Connecticut, and that perhaps we could improvise in the studio that mm -hmm. I had with Philip in Washington, Connecticut. And we shared a marijuana, the only one I ever took because I got heart flutters. <laughs> <laughs> For our first improv, I remember. And that led to many, many, many years of collaborating. Okay. <laughs> and Crow's Nest, I asked Robbie Barnett from Palopolis if he wanted to also work with me and Felix. And we made a piece called The Garden of Villandry, which ABT is doing next season. Oh, wow. And they do it about every four years. It's a trio about a woman who was in love with two men at the same time, which coincided with my own life. Hmm. So my work, when I look back, has often been autobiographical ask you unintentionally. That. Now I'm so old, it doesn't matter. <laughs> I, yeah, I was sort of wondering if it now was... Now I'm doing St. Francis. I don't know where that... <laughs> well, this is being an old age, finding spiritual life. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> if it was like... If the making, creating the work was like a kind of therapy, you know, working through issues yeah. and things. And it's very intuitive and very instinctive. I, um, I love research. I've read 12 biographies of St. Francis. I know more about St. Francis than I need to know to make a theater piece. Yeah, I always wonder about this because as a historian who loves research, like, how do you know when to stop and actually start, like, creating? Like, when's the There's point? a point where you think, put it away and trust instinct. Mm -hmm. When I do teach, which isn't very often, 
it's to try to get young people to trust their own instinct and to develop intuition as a tool. Mm-hmm. I mean, for me, I'll often have an idea, I have no idea why or where it comes from, but I have, after many, many years, learned to trust. If I, if I love it and get excited about it, go fly with it. Mm-hmm. And then, ultimately, I understand why I liked it. And if I don't like it, I throw it out. <laughs> Like a bad purchase. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Like, it seems like, especially with Palabolus and then the time after, you, it sounds like you're incredibly busy and traveling all the time. How did you balance that with having motherhood big, and everything? I just took David on the road until he was 10. Okay. And he said, Mom, I'm not going anymore. One of my most wonderful memories is David at the age of eight. We were on tour with Pierre Cardin, and we were the warm-up for his fashion shows. Did he dress you guys? No, oh. no. And he didn't pay us that well either. But, he was <laughs> but we had great meals and stayed in wonderful places. <laughs> David sang secondhand rows for silk merchants in Kyoto <laughs> at age eight. <laughs> Yeah, it was a lot of fun. And he also, David performed in the pieces. He would streak naked in various shows when he was very, very young. (laughs) He even did an interview in the American newspaper in Rome at age eight or nine, what it was like to be on the road with Palavolos. I have it somewhere. It's charming. We're obviously very good friends. So we did Crow's Nest. I did a lot of solo work. Uh, Felix and Robbie made some really interesting duets. In the meantime, Philip and I also had a farm, and we had horses and cows and peacocks and chickens and ducks and guinea hens and doves. We raised everything. I loved animals. I fell in love with a neighbor, a painter named Robert Andrew Parker, who I was horseback riding with. And so my life splintered and I winged out on my own with Parker for a few years and he was 18 years older than me (coughs) and pretty crazy and it was a very informative relationship for my work became much darker more tortured I explored my own psyche and the roles that were created in my work it, it, uh, with a new understanding of misery. <laughs> you know, you cannot live a life without big, strong influences along the road that affect what you do. I've, uh, Garden of Earthy Delights, I was still wounded from the failed relationship with Parker, and I explored heaven and hell and Adam and Eve and flying. The idea of exploring flight came to me from looking at Chagall. I wanted to be one of those flying brides Hmm. with a bundle of lilacs in my arms, but it turned out to be heaven and hell and Hieronymus Bosch. Uh, I did more Kafka again. I did a one-woman show also for Linda Hunt in 1980 where she played Mary, Queen of Scots, and uh, Queen Elizabeth I, with writing by George Trove from The New Yorker. It didn't do very well, but it was my first effort. And then we did The Metamorphosis in Miniature, won an OB for Best New Play in 82, 
then Garden was done in 83, 84, and it really took me and the New York movement theater world by surprise because I thought it was a disaster and it turned out to be wonderful. Mm -hmm. I worked very collaboratively so that the people I created with in Arshul Gorky's studio, Garden of Earthly Delights, was made in that room. I work with people that I genuinely love and grow to care for, like extended family, and their input is incredibly unique and important to what all my work becomes. So that I'm not the kind of director to push people around and say, do this, do that. Ultimately, I do edit and choose and work in every area from design, light, music, I'm, I'm and raising money. I wear all the hats, which is a drag, honestly. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> it's awful. Jeffrey Bean, by the way, did give me a lot of clothes. How did you meet Jeffrey Bean? Uh, Vienna Lust House. Mm -hmm. Joe Papp took it from St. Clement's Church in 1987, and it got extended at the public theater for the summer. Um, he transferred it to the public, to the Newman. And Jeffrey Bean came to see it, and I didn't know him, but he sent me the next day a huge vase the size of a tire of white flowers, a glass vase that was like as big as your arms can circle, filled with white roses and white lilacs and white, wow. you know, it was an amazing. And I went out in front, he came back three times and thanked him and he invited me to dinner. And we became friends and he was very kind and very supportive of my work and helped me revive Vienna in 2002 and gave some financial help and went to the Kennedy Center. And he was very generous and I one day gave him a photograph of Inga Mora, mm -hmm. who was a very close friend of a man sitting in Georgia, Russia, slash, not US, with sitting in a black cape of a tent with a stick. And Jeffrey made me a black coat based on that photograph. Oh, wow. And he, he just would give me clothes. As a director, I usually wear blue jeans and sweaters and blue fly. I miss him. What happens when you get to my age, 75, is that you lose a lot of people. So my world is shrinking that way. I, when I wrote you, I just lost yeah. my cousin, Margot Lyon, who produced Hairspray. Oh. Okay. An Angels in America, there's oh, a wow. huge... I talk to her every day for nearly 75 years, so that's been a big loss. It was just two weeks ago yesterday. Yeah. I'm so sorry, yeah. I'm just beginning to sleep again. Anyway, so that's the darker side. Because we were just talking about Jeffrey um, and Vienna. So you did Garden of Earthly Delights. Garden of Earthly Delights. Uh, chronologically, I did Garden of Earthly Delights, 83, 84. Then the next piece I did was called A Metamorphosis in Miniature, which was Kafka. Kafka. Jeff Wanshell adopted The Metamorphosis. It was 35 minutes long. It was with Linda Hunt and David Rounds, and it was at the Cabiculo and won Best New Play. That one was 1982. Okay, 1980, I did 
The Mary Queen of Scots. I've forgotten the title for the moment. That was the first one, Lenon. Then 82, we did A Metamorphosis in Miniature. 83, 84, I did Garden of Earthly Delights. 86, I did The Hunger Artist, another Kafka with Richard Greenberg and Richard Peasley, by the way, had been my composer, who worked with Peter Brook mm-hmm. and did Marat's, the music for Marat Sad in his famous Midsummer Night's Dream. Dick Peasley wrote Garden of Earthly Delights. Then we did the Kafka, The Hunger Artist. Then in 86, 87, we did Vienna Lust House. And what happened with Vienna was Lynn Austin, my producer, had wanted us to do Hiroshima by John Hershey. And we were sitting at this table and Dick dropped his head in his hands and said, I can't do it. And I said, I'll go to my bookshelf. And I saw, I had just been in Venice and seen the work of Egon Schiele and Klimt for the first time. I said, why don't we do Vienna at the turn of the century? So we did Vienna in 87, and that one best of the year. So I was on a roll. Then I did Miracolo de More, which was the Miracle of Love, which was a post-Robert Andrew Parker piece called The Miracle of Love with fake Italian, with three countertenors, and I had all the men were hunchbacks and the women were all flowers. Based, the women were based on Granville, do you mm-hmm. know the, yeah. the flower prints, and the men were based on Tiepolo's hunchback, okay. Puccinelli's. <laughs> and was it a and so this was put your post relationship. It was it a was it a positive about love or was it feeling? Mirac- it was ironic. The miracle okay. of love, miracolo d'amore, yeah. <laughs> meaning that it was ugly mm-hmm. and brutal. Um, a lot of nudity. I've done a lot of nudity on the stage, having been an artist model myself, having been married to a sculptor and lived with a painter. In fact, I'm doing a new work about an artist relationship between an artist and model. I have three projects going. Henry Darger, do you know? Yeah, the, I'm doing a, wow, yeah. the artist? I'm, yeah, I'm doing a work on Henry Darger with Michael Stuhlbarg. Right. And we're using Darger. Have you ever read Darger's writing? No, I've just seen the art. I've... It's unbelievable. He wrote 40,000 pages, and we're using autobiographical writing. Sunday night, I'm having dinner with my composer, Stuart Wallace, who wrote the opera Harvey Milk. He's writing a requiem for little girls. <laughs> I mean, Dark was crazy. So I have yeah. three projects. It's very inspiring that you're doing so much. It's yeah. exhausting. And to talk about my situation now is that I've had a wonderful, exciting career that's made very little money. <laughs> Many of my producers have left this world. Mm-hmm. And right now, in a moment of strong hashtag movement. It's very hard for a woman my age to get back in. Mm-hmm. In fact, I wake up in this lovely old house and I think, what the fuck am I doing? Um, but I love working and I love collaboration. I mean, there's nothing more fun than being in a room with people who are excited about a subject and everybody's focused on it. It's probably like for a young bride planning a wedding, but it's a theatrical event that takes us through history. It, you get to think about intertwining 
music, light, imagery, costume, text, movement. How do you make it work? How do you make it seamless? They're good laughs, good meals, frustration, confusion, grief. But ultimately, it's like remaking a family each time. And very rewarding that way because there is a vulnerability and honesty in the exchange, like a new relationship that you're excited about. And uh, that's what keeps drawing me back to work. Whereas as an older person, I could be sitting around going to the occasional dinner party, but I'd much rather be in a room with young, vibrant collaborators not that I don't like a good dinner yeah. party. I think you need to keep active and go. Well, it does keep you, you focused. Get, yeah, and I think and, it. But to be doing three and have no producer, no relationship with the producers in the way that I have mm -hmm. had, because Lynn Alston, Joe Papp, Charles Reinhardt, who ran the American Dance Festival, these were people who would also help fund their belief in you. And at my age, I'm also getting turned down from grant applications. And with all these, the three projects you're working on now, did you originate them or did some, some of the them? The ideas? Yeah. They're all mine. I mean, I have directed several operas. Mm -hmm. I've done two Mozart operas. I did a Faseo oh. Gluck. I've done Three Penny Opera. I've directed Shakespeare's Midsummer Night's Dream. But generally, I, Go from scratch in my own twisted little head. When I, you know, was reading sort of old reviews and interviews and things, it was, a lot of the reviews, especially, the critics were like, "Well, is this dance or is this theater? Is this like how do we? How would you describe your work? Do you feel like uh, um, I get actually frustrated with the fact that people can't identify what I do, and if a theater critic comes and sees that it's very image-based. They kind of call it dance, and dance critics don't feel there's enough identifiable movement. They call it theater. My biggest influence, which I'd be very happy to discuss, is filmmakers. So that I would say that my real teachers are Visconti, Bergman, Fellini, Bonwell, Bresson, to name just mm -hmm. a few. Uh, Werner Herzog, I've been looking at for St. Francis, mm -hmm. looking at Klaus Kinski for the devil. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm fascinated by space and light and gesture and pauses and silences. There was a wonderful interview with Scorsese in the Times last week talking about the Irishman and talking about how he became more fascinated with the silences and pauses between actors than language, which I've just sent on to a few actors I'm working with. I never had a single class in theater. I love directing, directing actors now, but I know when I first, I did a play at the National Theater in London with Christopher Hampton based on Alice in Wonderland and the letters of Lewis Carroll. And I remember weeping before rehearsals with kind of wonderful British actors, being terrified of language. Now it no longer terrifies me, which is good.
it's been hard not knowing what department I fall into because America is so often literal. Mm-hmm. Whereas I feel had I, I might have had an easier time living in Europe, honestly. Mm-hmm. But here I am. <laughs> and it is frustrating. I did get a Dramatist Guild Award recently. And you, I think, but I don't write. But I was so flattered and tickled to get the recognition from a Writers Guild. I mean, I think your writing is probably like pulling together all, you know, oh, oh, yeah. through the creation of these, yeah. you know, even if it's just not the, it's not the words, it's, right? It's but the, I have, I'm working with a wonderful writer now, Fanny Howe, I know that. who's a poet. Mm-hmm. Um, she wrote a book about St. Francis and several writers, I'd been talking with Frank Pugliese, Christopher Hampton, Lucas Nath, and Walsh. Even even tried to contact Mary Oliver near the end of her life, but Fanny's never written a piece for the theater, and she's a wonderful poet in her late seventies who is incredibly well versed on Saint Francis, and she's been phenomenally open and generous about letting me pick apart and rearrange. Um, the man I was talking to on the phone is the documentary filmmaker who's her friend. Mm-hmm. I love working with writers. I've worked with Sebastian Barry, who's mm-hmm. an Irish novelist. I've worked with Christopher Hampton. Alfred Urey was one of my most wonderful collaborations. You saw yeah, Angel, Angel Reapers. We met at a Thanksgiving party at Arthur Carter, who used to own The Observer before Jared mm-hmm. Kushner. Alfred tapped me on the shoulder and he said, would you like to do a piece on the Shakers? He was fascinated by the subject because it was forbidden to have sex and he was very interested in making a work about sexual repression and religion. Mm -hmm. So we did a workshop for Lincoln Center Theater in about 2000. Six with Francis McDormand and Michael Stuhlbarg. And it was very much like a bio flick. And Andre Bishop, after we did a showing, said it wasn't for his audience. So we dropped it completely. And then one of my dancers, who had been like an assistant, said five years later, let's go back and look at the Shakers again. And I said, I don't know if I want to. But she convinced me to, her name is Gabby Malone, and we started working on the movement again of the Shakers. And Alfred completely reconceived the piece for monologues, like testimonies of people who joined the Shakers, rather than doing a kind of biographically sensible Mm -hmm. story. And it was so incredibly rewarding. So five years later, 2011, we did it at the Joyce Theater. And then I'm a resident at the Signature Theater, thanks to wonderful Jim Houghton, who passed away. And Jim said, why don't you revive the Shakers? And so we got that much more focus next time around. So we've had three hits at it. And it's one of my favorite pieces. And Alfred is certainly one of my favorite collaborators. 
And who would have thought the writer of Driving Miss Daisy and my, that we would have been such wonderful friends and collaborators. I really feel that the performing arts is about collaboration. It is for filmmakers also. I mean, you're only as good as the people you work with. And that dialogue is so rich. And the people I work with become my best friends. You know, a lot of times people say, who do you see up here in the country? I say the dogs. My son has a house about a half hour away. My ex-husband has a house about a half hour away. I believe self-education is incredibly important. You can only learn so much at school. Mm-hmm. And the people, again, that's part of the instinct thing. Go where you're where the scent leads you. Yeah. In nearly everything. Did you ever think about going into film? But you know how hard it is for women uh, yeah, filmmakers. No. Um, I wrote a screenplay years ago about an Irish circus, and Alan Rickman, I wanted to do it, and Alessandra Ferry to do it. Mm. Uh, and it was going to be for PBS, but they stopped then making independent independently produced mm-hmm. films. I sometimes think if I can't get the money for these productions that I would make a film about this house because every object in it has a history and I just think it would be fun to do, make a moving film about inanimated objects. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if I'll ever do it. Uh, yes, I've, I've always wanted to make a film, and what I do many of the lonely evenings in the country is watch movies, and I have a big film collection. Like I say, I'm kind of Eurocentric. I love animals. I'd have a farm again if I weren't still working. I have a dream of moving to Bavania, Italy, in Umbria, mm-hmm. which is where St. Francis preached to the birds. Where Where are you going to go do the... The show of St. Francis. We are, La Mama has a villa outside of Spoleto, Mm -hmm. Italy, and we're leaving in June to go for a month to do more development and then to perform in Spoleto in the cloisters and to perform, I've asked to perform in vineyards, street corners, to perform en passe, walking through the streets of Umbria, and I am hoping a documentary will be made of it. And we're hoping to be at La Mama next season. Um, but we need, <laughs> we need a producer and we need money. Mm-hmm. I'm losing, it's been going on five years. Signature Theater was founded by a man named Jim Houghton, where you saw Angel mm-hmm. Reaper's Jim passed away right after Angel Reaper's opened. He commissioned the St. Francis, and the new director came in. It's a new administration, and this is not on her to-do list. So we've been a little bit like wandering. I don't know if we're saintly, but <laughs> troubadours. I'll say we've been wandering troubadours looking for a home. Uh, the music in the piece goes from Hildegard von Bingen. Mm-hmm to Gustav Mahler, to John Cage, to French Troubadour, 
to Gregorian chant, wow, that's all sung a cappella, so that when you take 800 years of music history and you line it up a cappella, you don't know when a Gregorian chant stops and a John Cage picks up. And sadly, many of the people I've talked to about it aren't turned on by that subject. Uh, Fanny's writing is beautiful. It's been interesting for me that my last piece was about the Shakers and this piece is about um, a Catholic visionary. I'm not religious. I believe in birds and turtles and rabbits and trees. Mm -hmm. But spirituality is a fascinating subject and Francis, the word of Francis is so relevant today with the climate crisis, with the immigration difficulties, with poverty, that I feel his message is important to get out there. I would say my work is generally not message-oriented, that it's um, in the eye of the beholder. I'm a great believer not to wail at home, but to let people bring their own history and experiences to viewing my work, which I think for some critics is intimidating because they like to nail it. Mm -hmm. And because it's a poetic form and not a literal form generally, yeah. it's, it's hard to say what it is. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. yeah totally. The spirituality, you were brought up Jewish. Were you brought up practicing brought or just culturally? A nice Jewish girl with Easter baskets and Christmas trees. <laughs> Any occasion for celebration. Mm -hmm. No, I was never yeah. taken to temple. Okay, so there's. Have, I my mean, grandmother actually was, she was reformed, but my father's mother did Jewish prayers on Friday nights, and my father would put a napkin on his head, and the dog would fart under the table, and my mother would dangle a silver spoon from her lower lip. <laughs> so that, I would say my family turned their back. Mm -hmm. My father was a very good son to his mother, who was a believer. So, but my mother was, there was a generation, I think, of German Jewish people who had a slight tendency to be anti-Semitic, which is something I observed because my mother made fun of religion. Mm -hmm. But I, I think it was just a certain kind of snottiness. And she was a bad girl. Funny. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, so yeah, I guess I was just wondering, because if, like, these newer ones are sort of concentrating on religion and spirituality, if you ever felt like there was any any of your work that had come... The had only thing that seems appealing would be to live in a beautiful ancient monastery mm. and garden and sing. There's something... I can even see in your face you would understand the appeal yeah, of the quiet, and particularly when you think of the politics of this week. Yes. We're talking the impeachment trial, that the idea of moving into another world of silence, nature, simplicity, mm -hmm. has an appeal, but I also love shoes. <laughs> <laughs> and good-looking boots. Mm -hmm. 
you know, I think yeah. we all have these potential colors in our paint box. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's sort just... of, I mean, we, like a total dichotomy, <laughs> you know, in ourselves. Yeah. But, um, yeah, no, I mean, I'm, I'm a, obviously a fashion girl, but I think about moving to the country, but then I'm, you know, it's... Well, I moved to the country when I was 25. I've been up here for... I lived in Washington, mm-hmm. Connecticut. Then Parker and I lived in Kent. Mm-hmm. which is just up the road. Then while I was living with him, I saw this house when I was just two years older than you. And bought, and my mom helped me do a down payment. And as of two years ago, I owned it. <laughs> I paid so little for it. I'm you sure. know, it was like I paid $1,000 a month for like 30-some years. I feel like if I were to... F- find the right house I would move you know what I mean like I haven't that's what happened I'm not ready to move to the country until there's like something that would call me so well, much more than living in children city. yes yeah well that's a good reason I mean yeah. David was 10 months old we came up we'd been living in Rome have you found that living in the country has been helpful to your creative process yes because there's a lot of time to drift and I find being in New York necessary but exhausting. Mm-hmm. I think drifting from my creative process is really important. Wandering around, watching the light change, cooking, which one tends to do in less in New York. Yeah, I think it's really important the subliminal water running, <laughs> if you will, helps me find my instinct. Whereas if I have a lot of stimulation, which New York is coming at me, just survival is Mm -hmm. more taxing. Yeah, Yeah. I can see that. Yeah. But it takes, I mean, a lot of people say, how does a woman live alone in the country? I'm used to it. I remember, because I got married so young, and I remember when my last relationship ended, I was terrified of being alone alone in a house but over time I came to embrace it and now I relish it Mm -hmm. yeah I think yeah solitude (laughs) can be really nourishing especially for certain personalities you know I think and I have lots of books I have a lot of books on photography who are your people the photographers my favorites I think I've gone you know I've I've so many I've got you know especially being a photographer when I was younger, like gone through so many different periods of people I was passionate about. But I love, you know, for different reasons, I love the sort of Helmut Newton, Guy Bourdain type, highly stylized fashion picture, sexy fashion pictures, the sort of Baron de Meyer, beautiful romantic images. Um, Dwayne Michaels, who I've interviewed. I, love I know work. Dwayne. Yeah. In I, fact, I He was the first person I interviewed for this series. Did you know that he and I are friends? No, I had no idea. That's a, that's really wild. I love Dwayne's work. Well, see, his work is very close to theater. There's sort of there's a dreamlike quality to so much of it that yeah, I think and it's very really personal. Mm-hmm. I was good friends when I was 25, 26, 27 with Nell Dore. Do you know the family of man? Uh huh. The yeah. nursing mother. Oh, okay. The, they look like turn of the century yeah. photographs. She was in her 90s, and we became very, very good friends, and I was in my 20s. Then Inga was, a, I, 
did a, she did a lot of pictures of me. I mean, I think I'm in her most recent book. Arthur Miller lived in Roxbury, mm -hmm. Arthur and Inga. And I knew Bresson through Inga. And I posed for Pam. I love Nadar. I love Sander. Uh, Francesca Woodman. In fact, her work is going to affect the new show about the artist and the model, mm. for sure. Mm -hmm. When you're bringing together like, a big show, like the Hieronymus Bosch, are you bringing in influences, obviously, from other things? Sometimes, Sometimes from a photograph? an art. Mm -hmm. um, I don't, even in Garden, I don't think there's any direct quote, because it would be impossible. Yeah. <laughs> Vienna, certainly Egon Schiele was a big influence. Bergman, and when I watch movies, I keep a notebook, and I'll see, for instance, I just saw, uh, I'll see an image, and I'll sometimes photograph it about space, mm -hmm. or I'll see a gesture, like I was looking at Wozzeck with Klaus Kinski, and the way he was sexually aggressive with a woman, mm -hmm. but disdainful. I'm going to use for the devil in St. Francis, so that I steal. Martha Graham always said, steal from the best. Yeah. <laughs> I did a work on Goya. Uh, I haven't successfully done Goya yet. I talked to Michael Stuhlbart, the wonderful actor from um, Call Me By Your Name, about doing Goya at one point. These are the oh, photographs yeah. of Lewis Carroll. I did a show in London at the National, the Lewis Carroll show was really based on Lewis Carroll's life as a photographer. But he photographed naked little girls. Yeah, and his, people consider him a pervert, so he quit. And that's what the show was about. And mm. it was with a little girl. And she, we didn't take her down to nothing, mm -hmm. but she pulled her, the dread, the shoulder, she exposed her, her shoulder. shoulder. You couldn't hear a pin drop in the audience. It was, um, we were going to do a film of it for the BBC, but they became fearful of the idea of child exploitation. Whereas I actually believe in Victorian time, it wasn't about exploitation. It was a kind of worship of the beauty and innocence of little girls. You know, everything now is so fucking political, isn't it? Yes, especially in the arts, how politically correct everything has to be. And that it, it's... Well, you can't be on, you can't do anything anymore yeah. or you get criticized for it. Never in my life until the Trump administration actually, and this may be in reaction to that, that I ever had to consider political correctness. And I've never felt I've exploited anyone or anything. But now, even the idea of female nudity on stage is probably going to be questioned. But it shan't stop me. <laughs> but I, it's fascinating to, because the political stuff is, for instance, the Darger work is about little, a lot of things are little girls mm -hmm. with penises, and I say how contemporary, right? So we'll finally, he dealt with transsexuality and imagery back in 1930s, 40s, mm -hmm. 50s. You know, I mean, not that's not why I'm doing the piece. 
His writing is amazing. Oh, so this art historian said something that was politically not correct in a class at the Art Institute. He's incredible. He's like the foremost authority on Darger. There's one other writer um, who is as well. And he just got... I think when I put nudity on the stage, the first big piece was Vienna Lust House, but it was based on Egon Schiele. My own body felt like a Schiele when I was younger. Because I was married to a sculptor and lived with nude models walking around the house, my one of my close friends used to model on the dining room table and I'd go out to rehearsals and I'd come home and she'd be lying naked with male friends sitting around drawing her on the dining room table. I never took nudity as being anything other than artistic, in a way. I have no desire to shock. I have no real desire to do political message. I guess what I do is very personal, like a child's finger painting. I mean, I find it a really hard time because for the first time in my life, I have to be self-conscious about what's going out there and never, never, never before. Mm -hmm. I mean, with dancers, I have a habit. They meet, they shake hands, they say, what's your name? And then they put their heads in each other's crotches. It's not, I mean, it's just a way of living. Mm -hmm. That there is an incredible freedom that dancers have, no matter what their sexual persuasion, that um, it's more like animals. And I think all people should have that freedom does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I mean, it, I it, coming from a very waspy background where I don't have that freedom. It, it's one of the things that I've constantly been trying to like get towards. You know, yeah. like lose my inhibitions and repre- you know repressions that I grew up with. Well, it was just amazing that the seventies, which I mean, I was in college when the Beatles were mm-hmm. singing, when John Kennedy was assassinated pop art, it just, the time we live in influences who we become. And since I started really being creative in the 70s, it was pre-AIDS, it was free sex, free, I never did drugs except for marijuana that made me dizzy, Um, nor did I need, I wasn't promiscuous because I got married in the 60s. Not to say that I was 100% chaste, it was a different time. <laughs> um, but we are the product of the time we grew up in. I just don't know where today is leading because everything's forbidden. Mm-hmm. And there's so much corruption in America right now, it is so disheartening. It could put one in a complete state of mourning day in and day out. I mean, I, I, it's just a poll. I mean, I'm I'm sure you've had these interview all week, haven't you? The same thing. I mean, yeah. I mean, it just keeps coming up in every conversation I'm having. Somehow, it, it all leads. All roads lead back to this. To one how time. frightening. Yeah. I mean, we're becoming. We have a potential Mussolini here. I don't think he's Hitler. But. And there's a, because of technology, which is a beautiful thing in a way, but it's also, 
people have got their faces and their cell phones all the time. There is a lack of mystery, 24-hour news cycle, which I'm guilty of. You know, I watch Rachel every night <laughs> and Ari. <laughs> um, it's just a really different time in texting, messaging. There is less time for what we said at the table for just, what was the word? Drifting. For, dr for drifting, because there are facts thrown at you 24-7. There are poll numbers. There are, you can't get away from this kind of, even the Chinese virus. Mm -hmm. You know, there are another 78 people died since last night. Why do I know that already? It's not even noon. <laughs> I mean, honestly, it's an assault on the imagination. It's an assault on the intellect to yeah. know everything all the time. And yet we all crave it because we've gotten used to it. Yeah, you have to make a real conscious effort to not, yeah. you know, to actually switch to, off. To just shut it out. Yeah. Well, the new writer I'm working with doesn't have a cell phone and he doesn't read the newspaper. Isn't he a love bug? How old is he? He's a rescue. I love animals. They make the world around yeah, me. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I have two rescue cats, I understand. Talking about animals, I was reading about endangered species. Obviously, I'm reading reviews from... Well, Frank Rich, there were only like two, I think. Michael Feingold and Frank Rich. Yeah, from a long... You know, reading reviews from yeah, a long time Frank ago. And so... What did that do yeah, well, how did it, Yeah, how did you... How did it feel? Here's what happened. I think what happens is that I... Was the flavor of the month mm -hmm. in the 80s. And by 1990, they decided short skirts are out. <laughs> and Frank Rich, he killed it and it closed early. I worked for two years with an African elephant adapted elephant and the big white horse you see pictures around the house I took from the show mm. that I did. Um, I was working with Chuck Mee and he was writing the script and then he quit six weeks before it opened. And was, so I ended up doing Endangered Species to Poetry Walt Whitman. I think artistically it was a coming of age experiences that I took on too much. I tried to make it about endangered species, about the Holocaust, about the Civil War. I took on big, broad subjects with live animals. And it's when you eat too much and make yourself sick. That was basically, it had some beautiful things in it. The animals were amazing to be so close to, to work with an elephant for two years and have her react differently to me if I wore casserole or florist perfume. I'm not kidding about how her nose and her trunk would greet me. Depending what perfume I wore, I knew I would get different responses. <laughs> um, it was a gr great learning experience about don't chew off more than you can swallow. And I think that because it's the American way, because I was kind of having success with several pieces in a row, that it was my turn to get shot down. 
and it's a coming of age when you fall and as the expression goes the higher you climb the further you fall I then started directing opera because I thought I don't want to be responsible for everything and Paul Kellogg ran Glimmer Glass Opera gave me the wonderful opportunity to direct the magic flute which New York Times hated as well but the art critic, John Russell, wrote about travel and leisure, and then we did it in Canada. It went very well. But I've had my share of hate mail, but it just goes with the territory. Yeah, some people are going to like you, and some people are not going to like you. And it probably, a little misfortune makes you stronger. Sadly, it's a cliche, but it toughens your hide. And I've had both good and bad, and I've had, I think, more than my share of good luck of meeting amazing people in my life. Just wonderful, wonderful artists and collaborators. And you have to take some shit with it. I always find it so interesting how people how creatives, I guess, respond to failure, you know, or things that don't go the way that I buy shoes. You know, what I do is if I got a good review, I'd celebrate and get something I nice and stylish. Or if I got a terrible review, it would be a kind of, <laughs> what would you call it? Yeah, um, shopping therapy. <laughs> shopping therapy. <laughs> yes, which always worked better for me than real therapy and difficult. <laughs> and then you kind of even out and then you get forgotten is what's going on now Hmm. and then I keep working because I like working and it's I can't get any producers because I'm going through an ageism it's hard and I feel what I tell young producers now when I'm trying to hawk my work is I say ageism it's the last one of the Mm Phobias. I mean, gender has been dealt with. People of color is being dealt with. Education differences are dealt with. And I said, what about old people? Uh, the cover of AARP magazine this week was all about ageism. I'm experiencing it. And I'm also finding because of technology that when I go to talk to people about my work, that culturally younger people have not been exposed to the same things I've been exposed to. So that if I'm talking a reference of Hildegard von Bingen and Gustav Haller's Buddhist century poetry, which is what Das Lied von der Erde, Song yeah. of the Earth, is about, because it's a different time, they haven't had the same cultural experiences I have which therefore there's a limitation on the exchange just because we're different generations. And it's neither, it's not bad, we're just, it's just different. Mm-hmm. It would be like my talking to people when there were cars with fins who knew Model Ford, Model T's. I mean, it's just the nature of time that people live and respond differently because the airwaves are different. Yeah. 
I have the appetite that I've always had to work. So I, when I think if I can't get any support, I think I'll go into the animal rescue business and get a few more dogs. And, uh, my, I have a friend and we talk about starting a goat farm in Sicily. <laughs> so. I mean, that's a, a very inspiring place. You know? Oh, it's amazing. My son, who you probably will meet, we took a trip about five years ago flew to Catania and drove mm-hmm. through the country and we went to a lot of places and then I did a show at New York Theatre Workshop in 2006 based on Pirandello mm-hmm. Cows. Did mm-hmm. you read about that? No, I didn't. Um, it, the Taviani brothers did a film called, it's called Chaos in English, Cows mm-hmm. and we did it with Italian actors and I brought three from Italy and it was all done in Italian based on the four short stories of Pirandello. So that was my first trip to Sicily. But I loved it, I loved Palermo. I have a big part of me and it's because of my marriage to Philip and his affiliation with the American Academy in Rome. For some reason, Italy calls. I did, I've done three Italian productions or I'm in the middle of the third. The first was Cows, which was Pirandello. No, the first was Miracolo de More, then Cows, and now I'm doing St. Francis. I did Chekhov short stories to Scriabin. I did Hieronymus Bosch, which is Flemish-ish, Flemish-ish, um, to Lutrecht. <laughs> um, so I have kind of picked my way, Goya, picked my way through history, Alice in Wonderland, British. The only American subject I really have explored was the Shakers. Three Penny Opera was Brecht and Kurt Viles, so you can't even really call that American. Mm-hmm. Directed a, a Chinese of... opera by Tan mm-hmm. called Marco Polo. So I've done a lot of time abroad. And there was, seemed to be a quite a, like a period where you were doing a lot that were Central European that I guess were sort of harking back to what your ancestors with Vienna and all the Kafka. Yeah. And there was another one that was later that was German music. Like, um, um, an Uncertain Hour? Oh, An Uncertain Horror, we called it. <laughs> yeah, that was the German leader. Okay. And it was based a little bit, but not really, on the Magic Mountain. Mm-hmm. And it was my love of... German, Schumann, Schubert, Webern, Schoenberg. Yeah, I love music. And I have Juilliard School of Music to thank for phenomenal exposure, as well as my parents. For me, music makes the world go round. Some people say money, I'd say music. (laughs) Yeah, I would probably say... (laughs) beauty but you know my personal but yeah I mean I think it's but music is also a form of beauty what what has it been like when one of your project performances has been restaged 20 30 years later what has it been like to revisit it gets better it's better yeah I I don't I change a lot I always change for personnel meaning Mm -hmm. that I just ask my old devil who is leaving St. Francis to come to rehearsal this Monday with a new devil, they couldn't be more different. I go with the, with what I have. 
And yeah, I think that age and experience. Yeah, you go back with refreshed eyes and things that. This is gonna. Donna? It's an ass call. Donna's a Tosca. She's done a lot of shows. She's in the Shakers. Mm, yeah, that was amazing. Yes, um, but they were secondhand from the Metropolitan Opera. We bought everything for $2,500, just stuff they were throwing out and refashioned it. Wow. I mean, I don't. Uh, my productions look very finished, but they're nothing like a Broadway budget. Mm -hmm. And I work with really good people. You yeah. know, they know how to yeah. bring it in. I mean, and that's part of, like, in a way, the fun is to have certain limitations and, ha like, learn mm -hmm. to how to, to... I to, agree with you. To on, work within. On, you know, on everything. To create within, you know, yeah. those boundaries. And it's a more rigorous process mm -hmm. that way, and... I think that people felt about endangered species is that it was too, that we, it was too rich. That was the hit in the review. I remember from Frank Rich is that, you know, she's getting used to having too much money. I really, I think I wrote you that somebody died in the yeah. family. Yeah, I mean, it's huge for me. It's my very, very, very oldest friend since five months old. We spent every weekend together and we fought a lot and, you know, she was the city mouse and I was the country mouse, but it's been, I'm just, it's two weeks yesterday, I'm just beginning to be able to sleep again because it just, you just don't imagine having your best friend die on you. <laughs> I can't, yeah, I can't yeah, imagine. You know? When you talk to somebody every single day, and you know that kind of, I'd be driving into New York and say, "You have to speak loudly." I'm in the car, you know, and it's like not there. It's a shakaru, and I have to get adjusted to it because also with age, your social life does shrink a bit. But then when you have three unfunded projects, you've got plenty to do. <laughs> You've got three unfunded projects to keep on track of. And money to fund. Yeah. You know anybody for St. Francis? <laughs> if I think of anyone, I'll send them your way. Thanks again for listening to this conversation with Martha Clark. Please head to our website to see images from throughout her career, some video clips of her projects, as well as a short article. I'm hoping to be soon at recording new interviews in the field, whenever the pandemic allows. Please subscribe so you never miss an episode. All episode materials are available at Lady World Love TV and on our newsletter.